the typical person that we deal with who doesn't see themselves as a natural salesperson, we need to arm them with having something meaningfully different to sell. So that's where, you know, that's one of the reasons why you position your firm to go narrow and deep. Welcome to the Inbound Buzz Podcast, your weekly jolt of all things digital and inbound marketing. Brought to you by redpandas.com.au. Now for your host and co-founder of Red Pandas, Moby Sadiq. Welcome to another episode of Inbound Buzz. I'm your host, Moby Sadiq. Excited to join you for episode number 75. This is probably one of the areas we don't speak enough about that we all should speak more about. And that's the area of sales. How do you sell when you're not a natural-born salesperson? How do you promote what you're good at? How do you have those tough conversations? Well, Blair Enns is an expert at that. He wrote the book Win Without Pitching. And although his expertise and specialization does rest with the design and creative services field, um, and he talks about why he niches to those areas, by the way, He is a master of getting the reluctant salesperson. I think that's many of us, the reluctant salesperson who needs to be in that sales situation. Now, that's everyone from uh, a small business where where you're an owner and operator and need to sell to a large business where you're actually maybe part of the sales team. Um, Blair talks about the balance between buyer and seller. He talks about exactly how to niche niche and position your business, derailing the B2B buyer decision-making process. How do you derail that actual, you know, buyer's process and get them to go into your own track? Um, It gives us these amazing sales psychology tips um, and honestly, so much more. You just have to check it out and listen for yourself. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a true sales masterclass and we're very fortunate to have this gentleman's time. So let's get straight into it and learn a thing or two from Blair Enns. Blair Enns is the author of Win Without Pitching, now a sales organization that helps businesses globally with sales training under the same banner. He has spent thousands of hours learning and teaching people about pricing, winning work, and how to strategically influence your odds in the dreaded pitch process. This is the stuff they don't teach you at business school and quite frankly, we don't talk about enough. It is therefore my pleasure to introduce the quote-unquote recovering consultant, Blair Enns. Blair, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Moby. Happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, let's just start with uh, just my intro there. Why don't you fill in the gaps a little bit about what you do and what your company does? Well, you got it entirely wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't, without Wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. Is the sales training organization for uh, creative professionals. So, we, uh, our clients are uh, typically owners of design firms or design-based businesses, but also advertising agencies, um, all kinds of like design is a fairly big umbrella. So I don't know if they still, if there's still such a thing as graphic design, um, web design, uh, interactive design, UX design, uh, product design, landscape design, like any, anybody who's kind of sees themselves as a creative professional, that's our target audience. And, um, so we have sales training programs that are delivered in different formats and uh, we call it sales training. That's really at the heart of what we do, selling the win without pitching way. Um, but there's also some kind of ancillary curriculum that's uh, 
that you would consider under the banner of what we call new business development, because we don't like to use the S word in the creative professions, the sales word. Mm -hmm. So we also have some uh, curriculum on positioning, on lead generation, on IP development, and a couple of other things. But at, at, at the heart, it's sales training for designers and design-based businesses. Awesome. Okay, let's talk about that dreaded word a little bit. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about the reluctant salesperson. And you know, most businesses just sort of find themselves in this position, don't they? They're, they're amazing at what they do, especially a lot of these creative guys that you deal with quite closely. Um, but they couldn't sell umbrellas in a, in a thunderstorm sometimes. So what would you say to the pers- that sort of person, before we kind of get into what win without pitching really means, what would you say to them to instill some confidence um, about what they have to offer? Yeah, and that's really our target market. We do have in the program, we do have some people that would consider themselves to be natural salespeople. But really, uh, we kind of built this business to serve that person who sees herself or himself as a, is a creative person first and who has to sell. They've, they've taken their kind of their passion and they've made it their business. And now they have to step up and face these business challenges. Selling is one of the, probably one of the most significant challenges for people who don't see themselves as natural salespeople. It's a very, uh, they put themselves in very vulnerable situations where they stand up and they have to, they have to sell what it is that they're, they make, so to speak. Mm. And because there's such a personal, attachment to their craft um any rejection can be uh there's the potential for it to be taken personally therefore that person is very vulnerable and we're really we've really built this business to help that vulnerable person in that vulnerable moment Mm -hmm. um i when i i grew up in the advertising profession and then i later in my career i switched over to the design side um so I, and advertising folks and designers are quite different from each other, and I identify um, with both. But um, in my, when I was an account services person and a business development person, I just would acknowledge that I was in the business of sales. To me, sales was a dirty word, um, and I saw marketing as a more noble avenue to the same objective as sales. So I would say, somebody says, well, what do you do? I work in advertising. What do you do in advertising? I do a new business development. Oh, you're in sales. No, 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 no. I'm not in sales. It's more marketing. Mm. Even when I was Strategy. in account services. Mm. Oh, account services, you're in sales. No, no, no I'm not in sales. So we, um, it's a tricky word. I know from the, from the emails that we send when I write a new piece of thought leadership or somebody else on my team does and we send it to our list, if we have the S word sales or selling in the subject line, the open rate drops. <laughs> so wow. we learn, we learn not to put it into the subject line, but we do, it almost always comes up somewhere. So it's really interesting. You know, that's why people come to us, but they don't want to, they don't want to embrace the S word. As a result, we kind of lean into it. We could call ourselves a business development training organization, but I really like confronting people with the fact that, you know, if you're in business, you have to sell. Mm, don't shy away from it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of what you do, like you say, it lends to that creative area, um, creative industries or agencies. But I think a, a lot of what you espouse helps any industry where they're required to give away time for free. Um, so, yeah. is that what Win Without Pitching aims to address? Um, if not, why don't you, you know, tell us a little bit about what it does aim to address and how it works? 
Well, the name is a little bit provocative, right? And it speaks to, um, it might not even be a good name, but it's definitely a provocative name. And it speaks to the, uh, it speaks to our point of view, our overall perspective on how business development should be done or maybe should not be done. Um, we fundamentally believe that um, you don't have to give your best thinking away for free as a way of, of winning new business. And we have, you know, training around how to do that. I think a lot of, a lot of people in the creative professions would nod and say, yeah, you don't really have to, but you know, the reality Blair, Moby, the every, you know, the economy with, you know, with the situation back in the shop, whatever excuse, excuse, external condition is in place means that, yeah, well, in theory, you don't have to, but some, you know, most of the time you do. And that's just not true. Mm. Um, and so that's really that, that's really kind of, it's a differentiating point of view that we bring to sales and new business development. Mm, okay. Sure so I answered your question. Yeah, no, I, I understand the context behind it. Um, maybe let's talk about some of the fundamentals. So one of the things you talk about, and I think this is, correct me if I'm wrong, step one in the priorities. Um, balancing the power in the buyer and seller relationship. So maybe what you've just said there talks to that a little bit, you know, oh, look, we kind of have to do it because everyone else is doing it. And the reality is we need to show some value and they feel, and, and this is where I, I need you to help me out a bit. They feel that the power is completely with the buyer. So I think step one, and again, correct me if I'm wrong in win without pitching priorities, you talk about balancing the power. So how do you balance that power in that buyer seller relationship when you're the seller. Yeah. So if I could, as you pointed out, if I could distill win without pitching the whole idea down to um, the fewest possible points, it would be two steps. The first one is to gain power in the buy sell relationship. And the second point is to leverage that power to change how your services are bought and sold and gaining power starts. It's almost primary. It's almost exclusively through the act of positioning, positioning your firm relative to your competition. And that's what we mean when you, when we use the word positioning and in the creative professions, we talk about positioning ourselves all the time. Um, and we use that word where others in other businesses would use the word strategy. So what you know, fundamental business strategy and there are different definitions, for the word strategy. And one of my hobbies is collecting those definitions. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like Mark Michael Porter's definition, um, which is strategies is the answer to the question of how you will become and remain unique. Right? So how you will become and remain unique. So that's essentially, we use positioning in that term. Now we might say, when I say we, the creative professions, we might say the word unique. Not very many of us mean it. What we, what we really mean is appear to be a little bit different while still being relatively the same as everybody else in this collective group of dozens or hundreds or thousands of other design-based businesses. Mm -hmm. So step one is really about making what I call the difficult business decision. And that is deciding that you're going to go deep into kind of a narrow niche or crevasse of we're, we're going to own this. We're going to be you know, the, um, the world or the market's leading expert on X rather than trying to offer these broad services to everyone, like rather than being an inbound, if you go to the market saying we're an inbound agency, well, you are inviting direct competition from how many hundreds of other firms that are out there saying that we're an inbound agency. And then how many 
many more hundreds of firms are out there saying they're a digital marketing firm. Like there's just absolutely no differentiation in that. Mm. Right. So, so step, step one yeah, is to differentiate. Mm. Yeah. Step one is to basically um, gain power and you gain power by removing or eliminating the, uh, the alternatives that the client has to hiring you. So the client looks at you and thinks, yeah, okay, you, you might be good. You might be the firm that I'm looking for, but I know four or five or 45 or 4,500 other firms kind of like yours that might be good too. So in that scenario, you have no power in the relationship. You only have power in the relationship when the client looks at you and thinks, okay, you can, you can help me get my needs met. You can deliver to me whatever, whatever it is I'm looking for. And I don't really see other firms that I imagine can do this the way you can do it or to the, to the level of quality or the level of success that you can do it. That's when you have power in the buy-sell relationship. So success really become, begins with positioning and differentiating your firm from the vast hordes of other, in this case, digital marketing firms out there. Mm. And then once you're seen as meaningfully different, then all of the sales training stuff, that's really about how do you push back? How do you leverage that difference? When do you go along with what the client asks you to do? When do you suggest an alternative next step? What might that alternative next step be? So that's kind of a very big area of that second step of leveraging that power. But first, if you have no power, if you're not seen as meaningfully different, man, it's a, that's a steep hill to climb. Mm, you're inviting the competition. You're saying we're like yeah. everyone else, you know, now fight us on price essentially. So yeah, right. can, give me an example and maybe, maybe a, a, an industry outside of digital marketing, I mean, can be in creative services. Give me an example yeah. where maybe you've approached someone and they've been like, Oh, I don't know, Blitz, it's kind of a big move, but then they've done it and they thought, geez, we should have done this five years ago. Is, is there any examples you can share with that positioning power? Yeah. And but first I wanted, I wanted to talk about my business because when I described what Win Without Pitching does, you made the point, you started to broaden out for me. You said, well, that's, yeah, creative firms, sure. But that's what you do is broadly applicable to these other types of businesses too. And I kind of mm. smiled inwardly and thought, I, yeah, I get that a lot. <clears throat> I get a lot of people telling me over the last 15 years, man, this is, you could just change designer or agency to anything else. Um, and it would be broadly relevant. So the advice that I get from these people is remove the focus of creative firms and broaden out to all professional services. So just, let's just try that on. If I did, my market would become so much larger, but how different would win without pitching be seen in that market? How much competition would we invite? Right? We, okay. We might be under consideration by some law firm, but then there are the other sales training organizations that specialize in just law, law firms. We would be the generous, generalist compared to them, even though the principles still apply. And then how many other generalist sales training organizations would we be lumped in with against whom we don't have a competitive advantage? Right now, if somebody's thinking of signing up for our program or they're looking at maybe a Sandler Sales Institute or another kind of like broad-based sales training organization, we have a very distinct competitive advantage. So as much as on paper, we could broaden out and go after these markets. And we do have some, like we have some oddballs in our training program and we don't pursue them. They come to us and we take a hard look at them. And if we think they don't fit, then we tell them that. And if we think, okay, yeah, they might fit, but it's our job to point out 
you know, all of the examples are creative firms. So we, we explain what they're in for and where the gaps are going to be. And if they say, I don't care, I want in anyway, then we let them in. I'd rather be in that position um, than I would be a generalist slogging it out with all these other, all the, I've had publishers say, hey, I'd love to republish your book, The One Without Pitching Manifesto. Let's just broaden it out so it's not relative. No, I'm not doing that. That defeats, I love that. I love how you took my... Yeah my question and, and in a good way, you've, you've poked holes in it, it turned at 180. You're like, well, maybe we don't want to do that because that's besides the point. Yeah. So I, I see I, that. And hopefully that gives some ins because I'm sure you get this because you know, I, I see win without pitching. I'm like, Oh man, this could apply to everyone, but it's yeah. like, well, no, you don't, you're not really understanding the, you know, for lack of better analogy, the riches in the niches kind of scenario, we would lose that. So yeah, I love that yeah. viewpoint. That's amazing. I, I want to be the dominant, clear, undisputed number one sales training program for the creative professions. Period. Right. In this story. How, how much? After, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Blake. After yeah. that, if, if another like niche opportunity or something opens up in, a, in, in another kind of adjacent niche, I would be willing to explore it, but not until we have kind of the dominance that I want to have. And if you read Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, notes on startup and startups and building the future came out in 2014 but i just read it earlier this year i think it might be one of the most i think it might be the best business book i have ever read one of the things he says in there is start small dominate a niche before you look to broaden out and i think that that advice if we're talking in inbound marketing firms or just digital marketing firms in general Man, that's so many of those firms need to take that advice they're so broadly focused they need yeah. to rein it in. And I think, uh, and, and this, isn't, this isn't a secret or anything, but in, in a country like Australia, you know, we're, we're obviously where I live, um, we're actually years behind in terms yep. of what's happening you're, in the States. I'm sure you've noticed that. You're you, eight you, years behind by my estimation. Eight years. Oh, wow. I thought it was like three to five. There we go. Eight years. So, well, when I, when I first started going to Australia, about seven or eight years ago, I thought, okay, so there's this... A, a lot of it is not um, how kind of behind you are. It's a function of the size of the market. But in terms of the, what, um, what, would be, what would be viewed as a specialist in Australia today would, not, would be seen as a generalist in America. And it takes, uh, it's my, my estimation was it's about eight years. Like, so if you're seen as a specialist, if you'd narrow to a, a digital marketing firm in Australia, like eight years ago, five years ago, that would have been seen as highly specialized. Um, I don't know. I haven't been down there in a few years yet. I'll be there in a few months, but I don't know if, uh, if that would be seen as specialized today. It probably wouldn't in a couple of years from now. Mm. So I'm, I'm guessing you get the pushback all the time, right? I can just imagine the conversations you have. It's like, okay, you know, you tell a client, okay, listen, Acme, ABC, um, you really need to specialize. Here are some cues. And then they come back and they say, okay, well, we're going to have the best customer service. And you're like, I'm sure yeah. you've got to take them on that journey, like whack them over the head two or three times and say, no, 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 no. Now you're starting to get to that. Do you, d does that happen? And, and what are your tips when you actually, like what's a litmus test in terms of saying, no, you know what? You've actually not specialized this far enough or yes, now you're starting to get it. How often does that happen? Yeah, so I've got a list, and you could probably find it on my website. It's many years old, but I'm sure it's still there. It's called 10 Tests of Your Positioning. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's 10 questions you would ask yourself 
And so you're trying on a new positioning and it's 10 questions you would ask yourself about this new positioning. And the first mm -hmm. one is, are you afraid? Because if you're considering narrowing the focus of your business and there isn't a healthy amount of fear, then you're almost certainly not narrow enough. So you need to, you need to consider something and have it terrify you. And then if you just wait on it a little bit and can keep thinking through it, eventually the fear should give way to enthusiasm. And that's kind of the second test is, are you enthusiastic? And fear gives way to enthusiasm. So first of all, the fear kicks in because you see the vast hordes of potential business that you're walking away from. It's like me saying, I'm not going after the other professions. I'm not going after any other businesses of any kind. I'm just going to go after creative firms and particularly um, independent creative firms where ownership is not separated from management. That's our target audience. Mm. So, well, what about these big network firms? What about these like management consulting firms, et cetera? No, just we're going to ignore those. If they come to us, great, but we're going to go after this segment. So there should be some fear around the size of the market you're walking away from. But then after you think about it a while, that fear will give way to enthusiasm. And the enthusiasm comes from the fact that it's at some point you're trying this on still. You think, oh, now I know who I would call for new business and what I would say. And it sounds so simple, but it's surprising how many you know, if, I, if I'm uh, back in my consulting days, if I was um, serving the, uh, the leadership team of a, of a creative firm of any kind, I would say to them, I would pose them all a question. I would say, okay, you're the new business person for a day. You get one phone call. You have to call one person to see if you can't drum up, drum up some business. And it can't be an old client. It has to be somebody you don't know. Who do you call and what do you say? And it's pretty incredible. Like the creative directors would say, I would call Burton snowboards or Nike, <clears throat> like some big brand that they're in love with. Okay. What would you say to the vice president of Nike? And the answer is something like, I would say we're really passionate about your brand and we'd love a chance to work on it. And I would say, okay, let me role play. I'll be the vice president of marketing at Nike. Click. <laughs> So they don't, they haven't thought through what it's like to be the business development person where it's like, okay, you're a firm that specializes in what you have this expertise in what is it? Is it digital marketing? If it's just digital marketing, marketing, what's the answer to the question? Who would you call and what you would say? It's some ridiculously famous organization because you you're in love with the brand and you would say some sort of innocuous generalist statement about we're really good at di digital marketing. Give us a shot. Um, what you want to be able to do in that situation is you want to pick up the phone. You want to be able to call somebody in your target market. You want to be able to say, listen, I'm, I'm calling from this organization. I know you have relationships with other firms of various types, advertising, design, social, et cetera. I'm sure they're all very good at what they do. But the reason I'm calling you is we have this one thing that we do and we're better at it than anybody else. So let me explain it to you. And if you have a need in this area, then maybe we can talk about how we might be able to help you. And if you don't have a need in this area, that's great. Thanks for your time. I'll go on my way. That's what is, if, if I'm the business development person at your firm, I want to be armed with the ability to make that phone call. Call highly targeted people and say, listen, the reason I'm calling is we've got this thing. We do, we've got this expertise, this depth, this knowledge, this skill set that nobody else has. 
And as the owner of the business, if you've got, if you've hired somebody and put them on the front lines and they're in charge of going out and getting new business, you owe it to them to, to be able to arm them with that. Mm. When I first, I worked for my first ad agency, I was 22 years old. I was a junior account person and my boss called me into his office and said, um, you seem to be, uh, he said, I think you're fearless. I wasn't, I don't know why I got the impression. He said, I think you'll call anybody. I, I'd like you to, I'd like to put you in charge of new business. And I said, okay. Um, I said, who do I call? Like, who do I go after? He said, oh, that's the good news. You can call anybody because we do advertising design and public relations for large and small businesses, not-for-profit organizations and government agencies. So you can call anybody. And that's, as a salesperson, that's hugely debilitating. It's the same as saying you can't call anybody effectively. It's like, go yeah. call anybody and say whatever you need to say. Whatever you salespeople say, just say those magic words and, and you know, get a, get a meeting and turn the meeting into a project and turn the project into an account. That's not, man, you've got to be some sort of high drive specialist salesperson to be able to pull that off every day. The typical person that we deal with who doesn't see themselves as a natural salesperson, we need to arm them with having something meaningfully different to sell. So that's where, you know, that's one of the reasons why you position your firm to go narrow and deep. The goal of positioning isn't to get as narrow as possible. It's to build a depth of expertise to go as deep as possible. To go deep, you have to narrow. Uh, that has got to be the best explanation on niching and positioning I've ever heard. You know, it's, people often talk about it, but if it's not scaring you and it's not changing your business and all those things yeah. you just spoke about there, it's not, and dare I say, I'm sure you get this as well, it's not a landing page. <laughs> you know, it's like we, yeah. we will have a landing page. That's <laughs> our position. No, no, that's not it. And it's also... Uh, not a flyer or a brochure for that segment. So absolutely. Um, is, is that what allows a brand to derail the process? It's something you talk about. You talk about derailing the process a company might have to seek new suppliers, whether it's an RFP or whatever. Um, is that what gives you the power? And why would you want to derail the process? Isn't it sort of just easier to kind of go on with it? What's, what's the incentive there? Well, let's start with that point first. Would you just want to go along with the process? Um, I just find that the, the client's idea of how they should hire, this isn't universal, but the idea of how they should hire a creative firm or a marketing firm is highly flawed. Um, sometimes they're borrowing procurement processes from other industries and applying it to hiring a, a design firm or a marketing firm. Um, if you let them, they'll pass all of the cost of figuring out whether or not it makes sense to do business together. They'll pass it all on to you. They'll get you busy doing all the work. There's no obligation for them to kind of reciprocate in terms of time or attention. So for you to come along and just say, yeah, we'll do it your way. That's not really a good thing. I mean, you're not as a marketing firm, you're not in the, customer service business and that's a big mistake like these organizations or people in these organizations it starts from the boss saying hey we're, we're in the we're service organization the customer is always right that's that's not true the opposite perspective is actually truer the customer is usually wrong um, if you get a, a new business inquiry an inbound lead and somebody's on the phone with you telling you what their problem is or what they think their solution is my point of view is it's almost certainly wrong or incomplete. 
And it's not because clients are idiots. It's because they are, they're inside the jar and they can't read the label, right? They have no external perspective. So you're and this, you know, all of the research that underpins the great book called the challenger sale proves this. The salespeople who are most successful, at least in a complex B2B sale, are those who kind of challenge the client's underlying assumptions about what it is that they need and I would add how they go about hiring a firm. So and it, another way to look at it is um, if you are going to go through the selection process as dictated by the client and you want to be the winning firm, then you... You're, what you're doing is you're trying to be a good soldier. You're trying to, you're being responsive. They ask you to do something, you smile yes and respond as quickly as possible, hoping that you'll be chosen. So you're, the, you're acting like the good soldier. But if you want to have the most impact, the greatest impact that you can on your client's businesses, then you need to lead. You need to, um, once you're hired, you need to say to your client, okay, here, we've done this a bunch of times before. We know how this should work. You might have some other ideas, but you need to trust us. We're the experts here. Follow us. So you need to be a good general to, to lead the engagement. So you don't go from being a good soldier in the sale and then win the business and then suddenly put your general hat on and ask the client to follow your lead. It just doesn't work that way. The, the tenor of the relationship and the roles in the relationship are set in the sale. So the sale becomes the sample of the engagement to follow. And so I liken new business development as uh, I refer to it as a game and the game goes by the name, the polite battle for control. And in that sale, you're trying to see if the client will let you lead. And if they will let you lead, that's a sign that they see you as the expert. They see you as meaningfully different from your competitors. They trust your judgment. They're willing to let you lead. And you want to get, you want the client to demonstrate that to you in the sale because if they do in the sale, that's a sign they'll let you lead once you're hired in the engagement. Mm. If they don't let you lead in the sale, then they are going to be dictating to you how the engagement's going to work and your likelihood of delivering your greatest work and having the greatest impact and then reaping the greatest financial rewards for yourself, they all drop dramatically. So you've, you've got, you can't just do what the client says in the sale. Mm, no, it's, it's, it's so important, isn't it? You'll be butting heads for the rest of your life and, and yeah, the, yeah, having a intense relationship time, for the short period. For the very short period of time in which you are working on that client's account until they, at some point, they realize, oh, you're like, you just, you're just a yes, a yes person. You're just, you just yes do person, what yeah. they tell you to do, right? Yeah, and they realize quite. Quickly. The metaphor is like, is like you hire somebody to drive your car. And then you keep reaching over and grabbing the wheel. Like the client hires you to drive the car and then they keep grabbing the wheel. And I, I like to tell the story. It's never actually happened, but I do this all the time when I hire a professional, I hire them to drive the car. And then at some point I think, ah, let me drive. And I reach over and grab the wheel and it might be a lawyer, an accountant, a doctor. It doesn't matter. And if they let me drive, I think, oh my God, you idiot. You're letting you, you should be slapping my hand and getting me off the wheel because I'm going to drive this thing into a wall and kill us all, but I can't help it <laughs> mm. because it's in my nature, it's the professional's job to say to the client, no, 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 let us drive. And some clients just want to take control because it's in their nature to do that. And you need to recognize that, well, just because it's in their nature, it's not in anybody's necessarily in anybody's best interest. So you really need to lead in the engagement and you want to lead in the engagement. You've got to lead in the sale.
It's, it's interesting you say all that because my very next question was about one of the values you guys have, which is about to always say what you're thinking. So yeah. that's, it's, it's, it's part of the same thing, isn't it? Like you, if you're always going to be a yes man and be dictated, then you can't jump into that leadership position. And uh, I think for all, all industries, but particularly creative industries, they don't do their best work, you know, when they're being stifled yeah. and, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, it affects them in all faucets of their life. So from a leadership point of view, there's an important lesson there as well. So um, I don't know if you had any further thoughts about that value, but I, I think you've already alluded to it already. The idea of always to say what you're thinking. And it, it's funny because it's something my mother told me never not to do, you know, Moby, don't say what you're thinking. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you had any further views about that value you guys have. Yeah. So we call it kind ruthlessness, which is um, say what you're thinking, but say it early enough that before it builds up into you become frustrated and then you end up blurting something out in a moment of anger. Um, and often we get frustrated with our clients, with our coworkers, with ourselves when we don't say what we're thinking. We're thinking no, we say yes. We're thinking that's the worst idea I ever heard. And we're smiling and going, yeah, we can do that. Um, and then eventually it just, we just snap and like blurt in either in an email or blurt out to somebody what we're been thinking all along. And it comes out mean, it comes out with this anger and this emotional, in this emotional wrapping. And if you just do that early, you diffuse the emotion from it. So you're able to have these direct conversations without getting emotional. Mm. It's a really powerful thing. If you can, and everybody can learn to do it. You can learn to just, as soon as you get the thought in your head, just take, half a minute and think about how you're going to deliver it. And there's all kinds of different ways you can package it up, but say what needs to be said. And if you can just learn to do that, you'll not only be a far better salesperson, you'll be better at so many different aspects of your life. Mm, great lesson. Yeah. Relationships, everything, friends, everything. I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think the next thing I wanted to ask you about, I think it's something that everyone kind of knows but pretends to think we're in a utopia where this doesn't exist. And I'm talking about the coveted inside track. So mm -hmm. you don't shy away from that. You're very clear about that in, in, in all your material. And you, you talk about the coveted inside track. What is it? And can we get it? Like, how can you get it? Is it possible to get it? Yeah. So if I'm in a room full of uh, marketing firm owners or design firm owners, and I'm talking about this, I'll say, raise your hands if you've ever won or lost business when the fix was in, when, when the outcome was predetermined. You participated in the process, and then afterwards, you either won or you lost, and you, it became clear to you, or it was clear at the beginning if you were the winner, that it was always going to be you, or it becomes obvious afterwards it was always going to be somebody else. And I can't remember the last time somebody didn't raise their hands. Like if you've been in business for two years, then you've probably experienced this. And if you've been in business for 20 years, you've experienced this a lot. It happens all the time. So we have a tendency to think that if there are, our, our odds of winning a pitch or a competitive situation are one over N with N being the number of firms under consideration. So if there are four firms, being asked to pitch and ours is one, we think, well, our odds are about 25%. But in truth is, so I wouldn't say it's truth. It's, it's really helpful to assume that somebody has the inside track. And if it's not you, that means it's somebody else. So if there's four firms under consideration and you, 
yours is one and you do not have the inside track, just think of your odds as being about one over two N. So about one in eight. Um, and if you have, if there are various forms of inside track, but it could be, uh, you know, it could be close to 100%, the odds that you're going to win it. Um, so what is the inside track? How do you know, <clears throat> excuse me, how do you know when, when you have the inside track? Well, so what we counsel is, um, it's going to sound like we tell people to be difficult. And you could just imagine that our clients are the biggest jerks on the planet. I can assure you that's not the case, but it may sound that way. We, we say you look for opportunities to push back. Um, on a flawed selection process where the client asks you prematurely for a meeting or for a proposal. It could be a number of different things. They ask you to do something and you very politely but firmly say, no, we're not going to do that. How about we do this instead? <clears throat> you're essentially asking for concessions. You're, asking, you're seeking a behavioral concession. And what that means is you want the client to treat you differently. Um, and it's almost always the case that they will not treat you differently, especially in a formalized selection process where it's like, we're, well, this is the process we're supposed to follow. If they say, uh, no, you're not allowed access to the decision-making team. And you say, I'm sorry, it's our policy that we don't proceed on these things unless we can have a brief conversation with the folks who will be making the, not only making the decision, but working with the firm on an ongoing basis. So like we're, our policy is we have a conversation with them first and we decide if we're going to take the next steps from there. So if you can get that granted to you, that's a significant concession, right? If you can get, if there's a formal meeting, whether it's a presentation or something, if you can get the date or the location changed, those are meaningful concessions. If you are invited to come pitch some work and you're told, listen, we, we don't give our best thinking away for free. Um, but we'll come in and we'll talk to you about how we've helped organizations like yours before and we'll share some case studies and we'll, we'll basically, we'll talk about how we might apply this thinking at a high level to your business without telling you exactly what we would do. Um, if you, if you want to proceed on that basis, we'd be happy to do that. If the client agrees to that, that's a significant concession. So the concessions, you seek them First of all, because they're a sign that you're seen as meaningfully different. They're a sign that uh, when they're granted to you, they're a sign that, you know, the client, you know, if the client saw you as one in a sea of many and interchangeable with 50 other firms or even five other firms that they might, they, they might say, nah, you're out of the process. We'll get somebody to take your place. And that's happened to me many times before. Um, but if they grant you the concession, that's a sign that they see you different. There's also another thing that's potentially going on here, and that's the idea that there's something known as the law of change, as it was explained to me by a psychologist, which says you, it's four times faster to behave your way to new thinking than it is to think your way to new behavior. So what that means is if you get people to act differently, they'll start to think about you differently. Rather than trying to get them to think about you differently so that they will behave differently, just get them to make a concession. So even if in the moment they see you as similar to the other firms and you get them to do a couple of things for you and treat you differently, <clears throat> they'll start to rationalize in their minds that they're doing this because you're a different firm. You're different in some meaningful sort of way. And that's actually a very powerful psychological principle. I love that. A, a lot of it's to a comment you said earlier, a lot of people think, oh yeah, we'll hire these salespeople and they'll do their magic mumbo jumbo psychology, psychology. This is actually one of those, yeah. one of those actually things that does work. It is one of those psychological yeah. um, tricks that does work. So, okay. I, I was, I, I, I wasn't understanding in the start when you started answering that, but I, I get it now. Like part of it is 
one, yeah, sure, to show how you're different and your different processes. But the other part is actually those psychological wins. Wow, I that's yeah. that's awesome. There's a, there's a little psychological hack for you. Okay, so um, you mentioned pricing, and um, you've got a book on this that I want to ask you about a little bit later as well. Um, when it comes to pricing, you know, and and I've learned this from your material. You talk about value based pricing versus hourly pricing. Um, is this something that you talk about once you have, you know, a little bit of the inside track? Like once you're able to speak to the decision makers, is there certain things you do before you give that pricing away that you will not, you know, shy away from? Because one of the things is often like, oh, look, just send me a proposal and I'll compare four of them and go from there. So if you can talk to that a little bit, I think that that'd be quite valuable. Yeah, I love the line, well, we're not in the proposal writing business. I'd love saying that. And I love counseling my clients to say that. So, and say, you know, if somebody just wants to line a proposal up on a desk against three other proposals, you're not in the business of supplying those types of proposals. So you want to push back on that. Um, the, the value pricing discussion, that's a big topic. I do have a book coming out on that. I'm hesitant. It's the date is pretty soon, but it's, it's 18 months late. Already. Right. I was so going to ask you about that. Maybe I, hesit- <laughs> and I could give you a date, but it's as soon as I say a date, it's like, we miss it. So I'll just say it's coming out soon. It's called um, pricing creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. And it's kind of a workbook. You can get the ebook version, but it's a workbook. It's meant to be open up on your desk, read the principles, read the rules, read the tips, and then flip to the tools section and start figuring out what the price is going to be for this specific opportunity. So there's a lot that goes into pricing. I would say in the little time that we have here, generally speaking, the earlier you deliver a price in the sale, the lower it is going to be. And that's been proven over like various industries and professions, but the earlier you deliver a price, the lower it's going to be. So We talk about viewing the sale as an arc of four conversations. And the four conversations are the probative conversation, number one, in which you prove your expertise to the client. What's interesting about the probative conversation is it usually happens without you present. It happens through your thought leadership and your referrers. So people are interacting with people who know you or with your content, and they're going, wow, you're the expert. And they So they start to see you as the expert and not the vendor. So that happens in the probative conversation. Then there's the qualifying conversation, which is a standard sales conversation in which you vet the lead to determine if an opportunity exists. Then the third conversation is the value conversation. And that's where you're determining how much value you might create for the client and how much of that value you might capture for yourself. And that's a whole big topic, that value conversation. Then we have the closing conversation after that. So it's rarely that kind of discreet where they are four separate conversations, but it's just helpful for you to think of the sale as those four conversations. Each conversation has a different objective and there's a different framework that we offer for you to help navigate each of those conversations. And we teach that in the program, but the value conversation is really about you've, you've qualified, you've talked about the client situation, you've uncovered their desired future state, You have this, they've painted this elaborate picture for you of what it is that they want that you might help them get. You've uncovered the obstacles to obtaining it. You've uncovered the kind of assets or the things that are in place now that might help them get there. Then you get the other qualifying information around decision makers, time frame, and budget. Then you move to the value conversation. Now, once you've uncovered all that information about what the client really wants, 
how they're going to make a decision, how much money they've budgeted, if at all, um, what their time frame is, then you start to have the value conversation. And that's mm -hmm. such a big ball of wax. Like the, the value conversation is where value pricing theory goes to die. Because the theory of value-based pricing, the idea that you charge not on the inputs of time and materials, not on the outputs of deliverables, social posts, like blog posts, et cetera, but on the, you charge based on the value that you would create for the client. That's an easy one to say and even explain. The reason very few creative firms value price is because the value conversation is hard to do. It takes practice. I kind of think you need to have about 15 real value conversations before you get pretty good at it. So you need to fail a bunch of times in that conversation, and then you start to get comfortable at it. And who knows if it's 15 or if it's 30 or if it's five, but somewhere there's a threshold where you will cross it. You'll be more comfortable with it. Then there's another threshold where you will just kill it. And you'll look at what you charge might be multiples of what you charge somebody else for essentially the same thing. And at the same time, it's still entirely fair to everybody involved. That's mm -hmm. the place you want to get to. So it's, it. it's easy to talk about. And what I say in this book, I've got, I think the largest chapter in the book is on, it's called master the value conversation. It's one of my five rules. Um, and, uh, and what I say is I think the biggest off, the biggest remit, of me, the author in this entire book is to communicate to you that this is tacit knowledge. You don't, you can't read this book and then suddenly become a good value pricer. You need to take the framework that I'm giving you and you need to go practice, 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 and essentially fail forward. And it's worth it. Mm, it's worth it, all the failure and awkwardness. There's never no magic bullet. And that's, Exactly no. what you're saying there. Okay. So when, okay, as of this recording, when roughly, <laughs> I, I hate to do this to you. When is this book coming? Is it like a year away? Is it, when, when do you think? No, it's, it's absolutely in this calendar year, 2017. It's not, we're recording this on September 5th. It's not in the next 30 days, but it's not as late as 90 days. That's all I'll say. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. I'll, um, as, as we get more information, I'll link that in the show notes. You also uh, wrote an article um, that I'll link and you, spoke, you, you speak about moving away from selling and tracking time. And I'll link that yeah. in the show notes, redpandas.com.au forward slash EP75 and everything else you've mentioned. So um, finally, all the stuff you've spoken about, the beauty of it is, I mean, you could talk to, you know, the end of today, but companies still need help. And I guess that's the beauty of what you do. So um, who is your ideal client? Who is someone who's listening who should say, you know what? Yeah, that's the, that's a kind of service that would actually value us in our organization. Who's, who, what does that person look like and, and what can you do for them? Yeah, ideal client, I would say a design-based business with some, you know, some technology capacity so whether it's outright digital marketing i just somebody who's kind of in the modern era era um and uh where the principle is so if i'd say i'd say 15 people although we 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 have different formats of the program that are we have solopreneurs in the program and we have um on the private customized private side we've got like global firms not, not, not like the big, we have like 
global, but smaller global. So like not many hundreds of people. Um, but like my target, when I think of the target markets, like 15 to 25 people, maybe let's call it 10 to 25 people design based one or two partners, principals, probably been, been in business, uh, seven to 10 years. I say that because there's, it seems to be a seven year ceiling where most firms are able to grow organically for about seven years. That ceiling might be moving now, but I've just, I've, I've noticed that for about 15 years there's something happens around the seven year mark where you just quit growing organically. You just run out of referral steam or something. I don't, don't exactly know why it is. So somebody who's kind of in that seven to 10 years, like maybe, okay, we grew and things were going really well and now it's not so easy anymore. Mm. Um, whether they have dedicated business development people or not, we really like working with the principles of firms, but at the same time, you know, some of these business development people in there are fantastic and we enjoy working with them too. So, Awesome. That's the target. The market is always, your market's always bigger than your target. Um, but that would be kind of right at the heart of the target. Awesome. I appreciate that. Often uh, people are, uh, when I ask them a direct question like that, they're shy to sell themselves, but I had a feeling you weren't, you're very clear about obviously who you target and what you don't do. Um, Blair, thank you so very much that honestly, like I said, it's an area we don't talk enough about in the business world. There's a lot of motivational yeah. stuff, a lot of marketing stuff, sort of the same churn, but the stuff that you, you speak of, we do not talk enough about. So thank you very much for your time and keep doing what you're doing, man. It's, um, and hopefully I'll catch you in Australia when you come down. Maybe we can give I'll, let, I'll send you a note before I head down there. It'll be, uh, I think it's going to be March, might be February. But um, thanks, Moby. Um, thanks for all that. Happy to do this and good luck with uh, your podcast. Awesome. Maybe the, your visit will be a book signing. How about that? Oh, it, it will be. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Blake. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Inbound Buzz. Learn anything? Return the favor by spreading the word. Want to make your mark in digital? Need help with your digital strategy, inbound, and marketing automation efforts? Then visit redpandas.com.au and be sure to tune in next time for another Inbound Buzz hit.